Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, author and social critic Walter Kern. Somehow we got an inferiority complex as a species. All the speeds at which we did things we deemed too slow. And all the ways in which we did things we deemed too error-prone. And slowly but surely, we made an argument against ourselves and for certain kinds of devices and certain kinds of computing. Walter and I will be venturing into the darkest recesses of consciousness in order to mine for intellectual gems capable of restoring balance to our species. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Team Human is supported entirely by listeners. You can now support us by becoming a monthly subscriber on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash teamhuman to join the team, or also just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You'll find subscriber exclusives and rewards. You know, your subscription sustains the work and many hours that go into producing this weekly show, not just me, but uh, Stephen Bartolome and everybody else who's helping keep us advertisement free by taking no money at all for all of their time. So thank you all for your support. If you're not in a position to support us financially, you can still help us by sharing the episodes, rating us on iTunes or your favorite platform. If you do become a member, a subscribing member of Team Human, um, you'll get access to all sorts of other stuff that I can't really make uh, publicly available. Uh, The first thing that's up for our Patreon subscribers is a conversation I did in London a couple of weeks ago with Luke Robert Mason at a salon called Virtual Futures. It was a two-hour talk about well, team human, transhumanism, posthumanism, the singularity, and uh, got into a rather heated debate with some uh, rather famous uh, transhumanists about the uh, virtues or non-virtues of changing who and what we are. Subscribing on Patreon is also a way to get uh, signed copies of my books. Uh, we're going to be offering the new edition of Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus with a new preface and a reader's guide uh, signed to you and mailed. You can download a copy of the Testament Omnibus. That's the entire Testament series in one giant digital file that you can look at on Kindle or any uh, 
phone or computer reader. You'll also, and this I guess is the most important thing, you'll be getting an invitation to participate on our Slack channel, which is the place where we right now discuss the shows. We pitch potential guests and segments, and we let ideas percolate out of our conversations. So that's the place where we might have a conversation about the problem for team human type people to find a place they can live and forge a community without then that community becoming gentrified immediately afterwards. What do we do? Where do we go? Who can we talk to about that? So the team human Slack, I'm hoping will become a a community hub where we can all really make team human be about what we want it to be about and who should have a say in that, but the, uh, the teammates of the actual broadcast. We've got some new supporters to thank this week. Uh, Columbine Gorton is our very first Patreon supporter. I don't know how she found it, uh, but she did. And Dan Sherman just supported the team with a donation today. And uh, Willem Malison and Suzanne Sloman, a bunch of people. Thanks so much for supporting. Take a look at patreon.com slash teamhuman or teamhuman.fm and click on support and join us in this new way. I'm really excited to meet a whole lot of you on our new Slack channel. We've got a very special episode of Team Human this week. It's a conversation with my best friend from college, my fellow writer and social critic, Walter Kern. Walter's probably most famous for his book, Up in the Air, which got made into a George Clooney movie. And he had a best-selling book called Blood Will Out about how he and a whole lot of the New York scene was fooled by a guy who said he was a a Rockefeller and ultimately committed a murder. Uh, And uh, Walter was also a uh, literary critic for the New York Times for a whole long time. And he writes the uh, opening essay for Harper's Magazine every other, every third month. Uh, But I know him mostly as a fellow traveler. Uh, Walter used to write the plays I would direct in college, these crazy plays about... uh, One was about Andy Warhol's factory called Soft White Kids in Leather. And there was another... Gosh, what was it called? I forgot, but it was about a president deciding whether or not to push the atomic uh, nuclear button, which at the time seemed like uh, something imminent. Walter and I, uh, we really only connect every few years at this point, but when we do, it becomes quite a marathon. Earlier this year, I met him in Las Vegas after I did a talk, and we took a walk that lasted somewhere between eight and ten hours, and we finally came around to the uh, team human conclusion that human beings are not the problem, we are the solution. Uh, So in this exchange, which is going to run over the next two episodes of Team Human, Walter and I cover everything from the replacement of humans by machines to the mechanization of human consciousness by algorithms. But the information we cover is really secondary to the style of engagement that we're trying to model, which is really about total honesty it's a it's a yes and approach to collaborative seeking that we borrow from the uh, improvisation people and we try to operate with mutual love and respect throughout even when we're we're disagreeing so we've broken up the conversation into two parts we've got the first part this week and the second which uh, becomes a little more harrowing i think uh second will come to you next week so Thanks for listening. You're on Team Human. So I was reading this on the on the Playboy interview where you said, uh, there's a big story in our lives today. It's not politics, finally. It's not changes in relationships between men and women. It's the relationship between the human and the non-human. Slowly but surely, we are giving way to our own creations. Our esteem as a species is starting to sink. I've watched all my life as people have become less rooted in place, less attached to the person they're talking to, less a part of the community that they actually live in, as opposed to the social media community that floats out there. I've watched people let themselves be displaced by their tools. So when I 
I read that, I felt like I was reading myself. You know, I'd actually cut and pasted it into this document to prepare for this interview. And then I looked at it and I was like, oh, where's the thing that I got from Walter? Because I thought that was my writing, not yours. I thought that was like a piece out of the the uh, proposal for my, my Team Human Manifesto book. So we've ended up at a, a very similar place about, you know, looking at the way uh, the the role of, of human beings and, and our technologies seems to have reversed. So instead of developing things to augment human agency and ability, we seem to now live in a world where we are uh, all the more willing every day to surrender our autonomy to the biases of these machines. Well, yeah. And before I address the point specifically, let me get back to the uncanniness of the fact that what you sent me, which were my own words, I now discover, were, I thought, your words. I'd, I'd, for, I'd forgotten speaking those exact uh, sentences to the Playboy interviewer a few months ago. And when I got the clip on my phone, I turned to Amanda and said, my God, look, isn't Doug eloquent? I, 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 actually, I actually showed it to, to my wife and said that. So anyway, yeah, we started out you know, with similar concerns at a similar time. And I, you know, I, I, let's, let's just set as a date 1982 as the moment when we started wondering about these things and paying attention. And even though we've, you know, been on separate tracks, uh, professionally and intellectually, we've been noticing the same thing and come to some of the same conclusions. Now I'm going to call that a win, not for, um, you know, uh, Doug and Walt being telepathic, but for Doug and Walt responding to actual real life, um, you know, changes. I, I think we've come to those conclusions because we've been watching and that is in fact what has happened. Well, right. So in some ways it's good. It's almost like a controlled experiment. It's like, okay, let's not talk for 10 years and see if we have the same response to what happens in culture. <laughs> it, it, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, it's no trippier than the fact that I think we've both been paying attention to some of the same phenomena. You know, we both took as our subject the kind of widest, most humanistic um, picture of what it means to be human in, in our kind of, you know, Western or, you know, upper middle class or middle class bourgeois cut of things, I suppose, to some extent. But in any case, it's exactly as I or you portrayed it in that paragraph, whereas we both did telepathically. Somehow we got an interiority complex as a species. Somehow we decided that being human was a set of limitations, a set of, you know, problems. We're too slow. I, I saw Elon Musk going on recently about the whole problem with the human mind is that it can't, you know, upload information fast enough. You know, it, it, we have to type out. Our, our, our thoughts into words. And that's so, um, you know, so inefficient and so slow. And, and all the speeds at which we did things we deemed too slow. And all the ways in which we did things we deemed too error prone. And all the reasons for which we did things we deemed irrational. And slowly but surely, we made an argument against ourselves and for, um, certain kinds of devices and certain kinds of computing. And in, as though in some sort of horrible Stockholm syndrome with our devices, we, we started to give over our will. Right. And, and, and the, and this, the, they're so it's, it's, it's intellectually non rigorous to make the kinds of arguments they're making. So it, it may sound new age to say, okay, you know, so let's say we're bees and bees, we say, hey, look, instead of flying around from, from stamen to pistil to part and part of flower, we could just extract the pollen we need with this device directly. And it involves no searching, no moving, or we're going to organize the system. Each of you go to one flower and then back because it's more efficient. What they would completely lose, of course, is the fact that bees pollinate <laughs> the, the flowers by moving from place to place, by roaming around, and they would 
all the flowers would be gone because they would stop reproducing. So, and I feel it's that way by isolating one aspect of efficiency and then uh, uh, basically calling us incompetent and and optimizing for that one thing, they end up destroying the larger ecosystems that that we're actually depending on. Well, you know, we we're all familiar with the with the concept of collateral damage. Mm-hmm. But but there are collateral benefits to everything that happens, and as you used in your exa- as, as you des- described in your example, you know bees uh, are doing one thing; they think they're doing one thing, and in fact, from a different perspective or a larger perspective, a system perspective, they're doing something else, something far more important, and something absolutely crucial to the survival of the entire ecosystem in which they live. Well, we think that we can pull out one strand at a time of our um, humanness and and somehow maximize it in isolation from the other woven strands. And we're pretty much willing to take any damage that comes from that process as just the price you pay, you know? I mean, in other words... We'll take a communication revolution, and if it destroys families and relationships, well, you know that's because they didn't they didn't adapt quickly enough. We, we've, in other words, we have developed a rationale for destruction, which mm-hmm. is truly insidious. Um, you know, we call it creative disruption. We've got a lot of names for all the collateral damage that come from um, kind of, uh, you know taking our humanity piece by piece and maximizing it among uh, on certain uh, limited matrices and 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 all the terrible chaos that comes from that is is our fault or you know the fault of someone who hasn't kept up properly and, and so you know it's as though it's as though we're scientists in a, a lab in which the only answer is to go faster, burn hotter, and so on. But there's no pausing to ask, what is, what is maximizing the holistic picture uh, like? We never stop to think. You know, our, we're pursuing machine virtues like speed when we are biological and holistic, and I would say even spiritual beings. And that's madness. Right. Well, then the question is, is are computers the only non-human thing that you mean? You know, when you say it's the relationship between the human and the non-human, I start thinking yeah. about, you know, all sorts of systems, whether it's a, the market is one of those non-human uh, systems. Right, right. Well, the problem is when you haven't when you haven't articulated what human beings are or are good for or might might want or might be best at or uh you and you have no consistent moral or even you know or mystical picture of yourselves then any um new toy is going to become god and you know in our lifetimes, we've seen free market economics become God. We've, we've seen it become the sort of all-purpose metaphor for the interactions between human beings. We've seen the cybernetic metaphor become an all-purpose uh, model of what supposedly goes on in the mind. Um, and and, and, these, and these, these systems, which are substituting for, a self, for an identity – uh, you know these these models, which are becoming metaphors for what it is to be human, are running away with us. And uh, you know we don't know what our tools are for anymore. You know when you grow up on a farm, you know exactly what your tools are for. They're to achieve a certain end, and that end is always you know a healthy crop uh, brought in in a timely fashion and gotten to market in a way that, you know, doesn't spoil it. And every tool serves that purpose. But now we're in a situation where, you know, our whole economy depends on, you know, speeding up the, the um, you know, 
speeding up the power and processing abilities of these tools, but with no purpose. In fact, we're trying to invent purposes to keep up with the, you know, capacities of our machines. Right. Well, you ask a kid what Facebook's for, you know, and they'll say, oh, it's here to help me make friends. You know, and of course we know that Mark Zuckerberg's not sitting in his boardroom thinking, how am I going to help Johnny make friends? You know, Facebook is to extract value from humans. Well, and the fact is that almost all of these technologies that are being handed to us are for something else than they pretend to be. And what they're for is the um, empowerment and financial betterment of the people who make them in some way or another, you know, either by yielding marketing data like Facebook or, you know, um, giving them a monopoly on some technology that we're going to have to use and, in the meantime, we th- what we think they're for are these little sort of, how can I put it, these little tasks that seem to reproduce tasks we wanted to do in the analog world, like socialize. So, so, so they tell us Facebook is the digital form of socializing, or they tell you that Twitter is the digital form of having a conversation, mm. or they tell you that, you know, whatever is the digital form of what you used to do. But in fact, they don't resemble at all what we used to do. What, what you're actually doing on Facebook is sitting by yourself facing a machine. That has nothing to do with socializing. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the digital form of socializing. That's something else. Right. I mean, and even in its original uh, uh, incarnation, the object of the game, it was supposed to be like a a Facebook for a college, you know, like what they used to call, I mean, at Harvard, they called it the pig book, you know, and it was for guys to look at girls to see who do they want to go meet. But even then, it was like essentially a phone book. It was was a, a tool that you use to get to go meet people, not the tool that you use to actually engage with those people. Right, right. Well, you know, um, how can I put it? The, the fact is, is that when Microsoft brought out Windows, a certain version of Windows in the late 90s, they had a, they had a motto, where do you want to go today? Right. And, and, and they pretended that what the internet was, was a new geography. It was a new kind of placeless place where you you got to move without moving. Now, the answer to where you want to go today in a traditional sense was it really doesn't matter because you're going to be sitting on your ass in your chair looking at a screen no matter where it is. You know what I mean? Um, you're, you're not going anywhere. We're presenting you with a traditional motivation, that of adventurous, restless, curiosity, and adventure-seeking. We're we're giving you a traditional rationale for a new behavior. Right. This is the the California scientists or the computer scientists are giving you the next frontier. You know, (laughs) where do you go after California? You know, and every time I talk to somebody and I don't do it that often, not as often as you do, certainly somebody high up in the, you know, frontiers of technology and you know, communications and, and new media. They're always saving the world. Every single technology. I mean, I, I hate to hear what the Snapchat rap is. I'm sure mm. it's all about, you know, oneness and community and this and that. Uh, but, you know, all of the, all of the um, um, gods which they supposedly serve are, of course, almost impeccably destroyed by their technologies. And, this substitute form of living that they're offering us, this, this, you know, this disincarnated way of being in which silicon replaces carbon or whatever, is not only not as sold, but it all feeds upward to a PowerPoint which isn't in our own hands anymore. I mean, I used to carry my life around in my hands, but now it, you know, uh, it's now in the cloud. <laughs> it's now it's in the cloud. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, what technology hasn't been sold with the rhetoric of empowerment and what technology has not ended up fundamentally disempowering people. I watch our politics today. You know, our our political arguments as we're, you know, getting into the Trump administration 
Washington and watching these hearings about Russia and so on are all about surveillance and who hacked who and, you know, which trail of, uh, you know, uh, addresses can leads to what hacker and who said who. And suddenly authority, responsibility, and um, culpability are so dispersed that it's as though nobody's in charge. And, you know, no one can be held responsible. And this was all done in the name of of empowering us. And suddenly, what, we're not even in control of our electoral process? Right. I mean, the, the, the question is, I guess, finally, in making these arguments, I find myself having to take an almost, you know, spiritual or moral position. You know, so when I'm confronted by a Ray Kurzweil or a mm-hmm. Kevin Kelly or someone who says, well, we just have to give way to the machines, you know, that, that that's the next that that's the next stage of evolution or something. I find I have to I have to fall back on the notion that there is a that human beings are special and it's and and our our specialness if it is not contradicted by the fact that uh, that it's ineffable but but proven by the fact that it's ineffable in other words once right. I'm, once I'm okay. able to define it then it right. might as well be a machine well, let, let's stop short of making an argument for our specialness and sounding like, you know, neo-traditionalists and so right. on. Let's stop short of that and look at it this way. The machine wants to do what the machine can do. Silicon chips want to advance uh, according to Moore's law or whatever, or, you know, um, they can go, we can make them go faster and we can make them do other things. But the ways in which machines can advance and in which they sort of are, are, are built to change is very different than the way we're built to change. Using the metaphor of evolution for technology, I think, is the huge mistake. It has nothing to do with evolution. Evolution is, is things mutating randomly in an environment which then encourages or discourages you know, certain mutations, which become successful or unsuccessful and then pass on their genetic material. And that suggests it's becoming more and more fit to a certain environment, but it's not, you know, it, it's just becoming faster or smaller or whatever the other engineering virtues are that are being pursued. And it's usually faster and smaller. Right. <laughs> but, but, that, but that doesn't mean it's evolving toward fitness in a given environment uh, or ecosystem, it's doing the opposite. In fact, it's wrecking. Uh, It's running up against the limitations of of an environment and an ecosystem such that we're going to have to change the ecosystem to fit the machines. It's the opposite of evolution. Well, human beings are reaching the end of their environmental capabilities as well. I mean, we're the ones who stretch the planet, no? Well, you know, and we are, but you know, here's what's happening. They're they're baiting the hook of technological progress with the um, lure of immortality. They're 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 suggesting that the reason we should go along with this kind of you know blind miniaturization acceleration program is that somehow it's going to confer immortality on the self, right? You know. Upload consciousness to a silicon chip and and live forever. Exactly. So so basically, the appetite for this kind of technological development is the ego. They're appealing to the ego. So I'm not going to say that you know standing up for the human is purely necessary because we're special and morally superior and we have some ancient integrity. But I will say that the reason to stand against it is it's deforming us as people. It's appealing merely to our ego and it's leading us into some sort of out of control, monstrous lust for personal power, um, which it never actually delivers. (laughs) You know, the power always goes to the system and it bleeds away from the individual. That's why Trump is such a perfect metaphor for this moment. I mean, I understand he doesn't, He's not a digital person, but he's he's 
so digital in terms of the digital environment. I mean, not just that he tweets, but he's the embodiment of this, you know, highly individuated, you know, personal, self-gratifying uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, power obesity that people are striving for. You're absolutely right. You know, one of the th reasons I think we're so uh, the media is so hell bent on finding a Russian uh, a conspiracy behind his election is they can't face the fact that Trump is us. He's America. We elected him. Even if you didn't vote for him, he's part of the same society that you contribute to and helped make. And you're absolutely right. He is a paragon of almost a kind of adolescent egotism with technology, the way he tweets, you know. Right. And all of these, you know, all of these, uh, both, you know, neoliberal and 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 supposedly left-leaning, world-saving uh, uh, people in the advertising industries and technology industries and business industries, you know, they leave their, they, they lead their, their organic lives at home and send their kids to friggin' Waldorf schools while they yes. create Trumpism out of the other side of their mouths with the jobs that they're doing, with the coercive advertising and, and ridiculous disempowering technologies they're making. You know, in the last year, we started seeing stories about multi-million dollar bomb shelters, which are being, you know, created for and bought up by the sort of technological and financial elite. Why? Because they are afraid that the disruption, what the so-called creative disruption that they're sowing in the world is going to lead to such vast unemployment uh, unrest, dissatisfaction, inequality in, in class and financial terms, that they need to hide out from the Frankenstein running amok that they've created. Right. I mean... Right. Their whole model has been based, on, since the Renaissance, really, on externalizing the damage, whether it's externalizing, you know, the, the slave labor or externalizing the real costs, externalizing the environmental cost of something. But eventually, the only answer is for them to externalize themselves. You know, <laughs> they've got to, like Musk, get off the planet or go to New Zealand. They're buying up a lot of land in, in Alaska now in... in uh, uh, prediction of global warming and thinking, oh, well, you know, <laughs> Anchorage is going to be the next uh, Vancouver. When, when, when utopians who are telling you that they are bringing about heaven on earth through their technology and you must sign on to it and you must vote for uh, candidates who will, you know, properly allow it to develop and, and all this, when those very people are, 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 are going to ground and building bunkers against the potential, um, you know, disruptions caused by their technology, you know, you've entered a cycle of madness and dishonesty. And, and like you say, for a long time, you know, the, 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 the game has been, we will distance ourselves from the, from the costs and the, the, the damage done by our, um, you know, wealth-seeking schemes, and we will somehow create some walled world in which we can, with, you know, with some reliability, uh, ride out the storm unleashed by our own actions. Well, that's getting a pretty, that's getting to be a pretty hard game to play, you know, <laughs> it, it, because the very world they're building is interconnected. So, so, so if you, believe, as some do, and I don't particularly, that our last presidential election was somehow corrupted, you know, over the internet by a foreign power, either through propaganda or hacking or God knows what. Well, then that means there's nowhere to hide. That means that our, our very, that our, their, our homeland, the country in which we have to build our bomb shelters is, you know, now not safe from some kind of viral infection or or or, or, or um, manipulation by evildoers. Right. So, it's the, exactly. It's the Fight Club end game. You know, we are the people that clean your bathrooms and bring you your food. You know that. <laughs> where you know you know as I start to as I start to think about it, you know, one of my um, it's not like technology versus you know. Um, organic ways of doing things uh but 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 
let's put some different metrics on it. Let's use the metric of distance. People who distance themselves from the effects of their dis, uh, of their product, you know, uh, who who live in an enclave on one side of the world while their product does destructive damage on mm. another side, you know, th- that that is more and more the model. When I grew up in a small town, the guy who owned the liquor store lived in the town. And so all the people hanging out around the liquor store and the bad stuff that happened in the parking lot, he had to deal with, mm-hmm. or, you know, now, you know, with franchising and, uh, and distance technology in general, capitalism can, and the, and the capitalist and financial uh, leaders who, who sort of own everything can, can be at a radical extreme and insulated distance from the effects of their products. But, you know, Oh yeah. You could buy a mutual fund of payday loan companies and not see any of the damage that you're causing, at least not for a while. Absolutely. And, and so this to me is what's here. Here's what's sort of perniciously wrong is that in so many cases, what these technologies are being used for is the remote management of systems that if you had to live with their consequences and be on the scene when they drop their dirty uh, deeds, you, you, you could never, you could never sustain them. But remote control um, capitalism, which, which allows people to live in, you know, completely insulated, distant, uh, globalist kind of domed worlds of pleasure, while the payday loans and the, you know, um, various schemes that they've used to extract money from, from the masses, you know, create addiction, create uh, despair, create depression out on the street. That's, that's, that's the logic of the machine that's so horrible. It's, it's not that humans, it's not that we as humans are special, but it's that when we live in our bodies, we have to actually live with the consequences of our decisions socially. You know, I can have, if I have, if I say stuff to you that's completely insulting out of my body and I say it to you in your body, we both run the risk of a fight. But if we offload conversation onto Twitter, we can have the most vile and nonstop conflict without any consequences. And so one of the pernicious points that I see us reaching is that where we have isolated ourselves from all the consequences of conflict and exploitation, and we've done it all using technology. Well, if you could do it where there were no consequences, if you can go into Second Life and kill people's avatars, you know, Aristotle would say that's a good thing. You get the catharsis of it. I mean, Plato would say there's no place for it in utopia, but there's certainly a place for that on the way. But in these cases, it's not uh, phantom damage you're creating. It's real. We're not just watching a zombie movie. We're actually hurting other people and destroying the environment, making our planet less sustainable and livable. Yes. And so, and so, you know, so we have an election, a presidential election like the last one, in which basically, if you want to simplify what happened, the people who are suffering the consequences of financialization and globalization and other things, the people in Ohio are losing their jobs or who are you know, addicted to pharmaceutical painkillers that have been foisted on them and, and often – who who are susceptible to them because they work crappy jobs in construction and so on in which they're always getting hurt you know mm-hmm. you and I, you and I working at a computer don't have a big need for painkillers very often but i promise you that when you're out there you know digging ditches and framing crappy houses you're always getting hurt so anyway well, especially in pe- your 40s 50s and 60s you know yes especially in your 40s 50s 60s so all these people who are suffering kind of you know at the at the blunt end of uh technology and financial systems and so on vote for somebody who expresses their frustration and the people who are profiting from those systems generally who are living in san jose or brooklyn and you know working for the big corporations or the ancillary companies that serve them are just appalled you know look at these racists look at these you know 
these uneducated, uh, monstrous, subhuman people, how dare they, you know, how dare they revolt? But, you know, the news is bad for everybody who wants to insulate themselves from those people because they're still voters. They still have a role in our society. They're, they, um, you know, we have not yet created some kind of camp for the Ohioan who's been displaced. And so, you know, we're going to face their distress. And, and these people who are building the bomb shelters seem um, painfully aware of what's coming. You know, when there are no more truck driving jobs. Um, But it's not just them. I mean, popular culture is aware, too, with the, you know, the the popularity of our all of our zombie television shows and Walking Dead. I mean, without the zombies, that is the scenario that people feel like we're moving towards. Right, right. And so and so to get, you know, to get back to our central set of themes, one of the problem with our machines and with our technology is that they have. You know, it's not that they're just inhuman and sort of running amok on, on on their own. It's that they have been conscripted to serve the very worst parts of humanity. In other words, the the, the ego, the, the teenage desire for omnipotence, the narcissistic self, and the manipulative self. Because really what technology promises to people who aren't just using it as pure victims, you know, just Facebooking and Instagramming, is the ability to manipulate things at a distance, to execute control at a distance. So more and more, it's not just that the machines have something intrinsically insidious about them. It's that they are they're being used as weapons, basically. Well, they're they are they are business plans, you know, and all of these business plans are depending on you know B.J. Fogg and the capitology research coming out of Stanford, and they're all part of what's essentially an attention economy. And the way to get attention is by going to the reptile brain, and you know either through science or through just sheer uh, 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 shotgun approach. You know they're going to. Uh, happen upon our basis instincts your fear of uh fear of sex fear of death fear of each other um desire for power uh desire to distance you know all of the stuff that you could teach or that you could learn from a lizard you know that's the way our technologies talk to us and then we say oh look at people look how base we are look how impulsive we are well we've got a multi-trillion dollar industry trying to reduce you know, neocortex-driven humans back down through their mammalian all the way down to their reptile selves. Exactly. And, you know, as an aside, I see Hollywood up in arms as, you know, as, he, as, as a body against Donald Trump. And I'm saying, wait, you created reality television out there. You know, you created all the systems that, that, that allowed for Trump and you fed all the appetites which he, you know, has inflamed and, and, and taken advantage of. And now you want to abdicate? You want to not take responsibility in the end? I you know, know. There was this moment in the Oscars. I think we might have talked about it when we were walking around in Las Vegas that it was so upsetting to me where they got a busload of oh. of tourists who didn't know you know they just said come this way and they paraded these tourists with their selfie sticks right in front of the front row of the oscars you know right looking at denzel washington and all these movie stars and all and and got them to take pictures and pose and stuff and it was so uh, uh patronizing it was so insulting that i thought what it was was here's hollywood in all of their costumes with all of their big money production television saying, these, you are the amateur internet-y people. We are not threatened by you because you're just little pedestrians and you still shudder in awe of Brad Pitt and Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie. And you know what I mean? And that to me was like, this is why Trump wins. This is why Trump wins because you're treating the people like shit they were treating them like kurt like uh, they were in a kurt vonnegut novel like in a zoo zoo on mars exactly look at them aren't they interesting these little people and they were also the biggest patronizing aspect was you know they walked them in there 
sort of like on candid camera. They were like they didn't even know. They weren't yeah, even given we're, warning. Yeah, we're all we're sort of all watching. We all know what's going to happen. We we had they had cameras on them as they were outside the theater coming in, and so so the reveal is going to be when their jaws drop because there's Denzel Washington. So they really treated them like hamsters or, or lab mice or something it was it was like the whole world got to be a you know a, a, an audience for this experiment that was run on these people right and that's the way it feels it feels to me in real life these days it feels like so much of our reality is configured to make me feel like that little helpless lab rat and not like a person in genuine charge of my own destiny right right Right. And so and so what we're really talking about is not is not that there's something wrong intrinsically with these machines and and and, and you know this communications technology but that it's being aimed at exactly the wrong target. You know, we we don't we don't get to aim it at all. First of all, it's all being aimed at us. It's not empowering. It's not running at the speed of human beings. It's running at the speed of electrons and human beings are being forced to catch up. You know, our intel we're being told that artificial intelligence it's almost a, it's almost an unquestioned assumption that it will be superior to us. It will be superior in the sense that it will win chess matches. It will win, you know, go tournaments. It will, I don't know, diagnose diseases faster than any doctor could using more data points. You know, it's almost as though we're like Uber drivers who are sitting around driving, waiting for Uber to get a fleet of all self-driving cars. But in the meantime, you know, the transition has to be manned by real people. Human beings are like human beings are like the people at the supermarket who are there to help you use the in, the uh, automatic checkout. Right, which is you... what the exactly. And who was it? The in the uh, uh, the MIT uh, professors who wrote their book on the uh, uh, the the new technological you know, the second industrial age. They said that's really where you should be looking to get a job is in helping train people to use checkout. It's like that's the most temporary job I could think of. You know, in, you, you, politicians say, oh, American engineers are having to train their own replacements. They're going to have to, they're having to train these immigrant, uh, you know, uh, visa holders who are going to replace them. Well, we're all being we're all being put in the position of having to train our own replacements at, right now. I mean, we're basically sitting around waiting. For, we're we're driving our own cars, waiting for cars to drive themselves. We're making our own decisions Wait while we wait around for artificial intelligence to be able to make them for us, and so on and so on. So we're in some weird like interregnum where there's about to be a renaissance that doesn't include us, but we've got to keep the world running until they can get that up to speed. Besides the fact that that's insulting, it's very weird because in any ancient literature that you ever read or any great literature or art that you ever experienced was the point of human life to hand off all of this experience and all of these responsibilities and all of these wonders and feelings that we have. Well, to... let's go there though. Well, Moses <laughs> gets the, takes them through the, get, gets them through the Red Sea, walks them around the desert for 40 years and then sends the Israelites into a, into Canaan and and doesn't go in himself. Right. Every right. parent with their child, you know, and folks like Ray Kurzweil or Kevin Kelly or some of the uh, singularity people would say technology is our child. You know? Well, and you know, okay, stop right there, Doug. Stop right there. They are trying to stimulate a parental familial instinct in us toward technology that is so perverse and so weird but it's it, it but it, but it's 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 akin it's akin to calling engineering advancement evolution but but they're they're treating us as though they're, they're treating these machines as though we're to have we're to care for them as, as though they were our children we're to we're to sort of hand off our our little turn in the sun you know, our little moment of a few millennia of making calculations with pens and living and loving and <laughs> driving our own cars. We're going to hand that all off to 
here's the thing. If you ask me, intrinsically, once the machine consciousness has stepped in and, and once we're serving it, I don't want to be here anymore. Right. Like, like, how do they convince us to still be invested in that future? How do they convince us to still be at all interested in that existence? This is Stephen here. Thanks for joining Team Human this week. We'll leave it there for the first part of Douglas's conversation with Walter Kern and pick up again next week. I'd also like to direct your attention to the new Patreon campaign we've launched this week. Now you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash teamhuman or following the links at teamhuman.fm. There are various levels of membership. All the levels include access to bonus content, outtakes, and special interviews from our archive. We'll be adding more content there as we go. This week we have exclusive audio and video thanks to our friend Luke Robert Mason and the Virtual Futures Salon event that he did with Douglas last month in London. There's both audio and video available for download at the Patreon site for patrons. It's a 90-minute Team Human Talk with a question-and-answer session that even gets a little heated towards the middle. Don't miss it. Thanks again for tuning in to the show this week. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.